Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I hope you brought your translators in case of any accent problems. <laughs> I have learned to speak pretty good Canadian, so hopefully that will get me by. Um, I've always enjoyed my visits in the last couple of years down to see what Chris has been doing down here. Um, I, I remember the intensive Greek class where we first got to know each other quite well um, and enjoyed uh, seeing Chris around Regent. He was much more intensive than I was, um, having family and responsibilities and those kind of things. Um, but, but it's been great to see the, the work that he's done down here with you and how you've all partnered together in growing a fantastic community just full of life. Um, as you probably know, uh, Chris has asked me to preach on Exodus chapter 18. Um, I believe you heard a lot of the story of Exodus last year um, and are continuing to work in the Ten Commandments this fall, so um, I'm just filling in a little bit. But thankfully, you're sort of well familiar with the uh, storyline that's been going on so far. And so I thought um, I'd pick out and talk a bit about Jethro's story. Um, I've never heard a sermon on Jethro, so I thought he'd be a good guy to get to know, to get an idea of who he was, what motivated him, um, how he changed over time if he did. And um, I always find those kind of stories about humans quite fascinating. Though I do realize when I refer to people as humans, I sound a little like an alien, but that's okay. So we're going to read from Exodus 18, if you want to follow along, um, verses 1 to 12. I decided the chapter had at least two sermons in it, if not more, so I wouldn't preach them both. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gerashim, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses, his father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I am your father-in-law. I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. So before we jump into Exodus 18, we should consider the two other places that Jethro turns up in the book of Exodus. Um, he's there in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And this is during the period when Moses is fleeing from Egypt. So a little reminder on Moses' story. He's brought up in the Pharaoh's household. 
as an adopted son of an Egyptian princess, and he heads out as a grown man to go and see and visit his own people, the Hebrews. Presumably, Moses um, dresses like a high-ranking Egyptian and speaks with an upper-class accent. Think of a sort of modern-day family dynasty, a Kennedy or a Bush, um, maybe a Kardashian or, or, or a Manning. Um, so Moses turns up to these people who are his people to meet his family who are working as slaves in Egypt, and he intervenes uh, in the beating of an Israeli, Israelite um, by killing the Egyptian foreman. And now, of course, he's in fear of his life, so he runs away from Egypt before the Pharaoh can kill him. And so Moses arrives in Midian, and he arrives at a well, and he meets the daughters of some priests who are coming uh, to water their sheep. Um, and they're having some trouble with the other shepherds. Water's a scarce resource, and they're fighting over it. And Moses helps them out, driving off the other shepherds and providing water for them. And they go home and tell their father about this, that this Egyptian helped them out. So the priest invites Moses home and gives his daughter in marriage to him. It's a very quickly moving story. Now, the biblical story kind of suggests that the, that the priest is impressed with Moses' character, and that's why he gets a wife. But I probably think there's more going on in the background. Um, well scenes are obviously familiar language to those who've read Genesis of the way to meet your wife. We know that um, Isaac meets his wife, or Isaac's wife is met at a well by the servant who was sent out to find her. Jacob meets his wife at a well. So there's this kind of trope that's going on, a literary device, a storytelling feature, which indicates marriage coming up every time you hear about a well. It's a bit like in our romantic comedies, and the protagonists always start out despising each other. You always know they're going to fall in love eventually. This does mean that if the Bible has any advice on dating, it says, go to a well and water someone's sheep. Not as contextually helpful as I'm sure you were hoping. So what we see here is this standard feature which indicates that a marriage is about to happen. And, and it's interesting to think about what is Jethro thinking when he meets Moses. He can see that Moses is well-educated, well-connected, potentially wealthy, but clearly he's down on his luck or he wouldn't be a Midian watering people's sheep. And we've got to remember that Moses is that because he's a murderer. I'm not sure how many of you married off your kids or will do so someday, but I suspect you're not waiting for someone to flee across the border um, who's a murderer in the hope of marrying them off. So I think what Jethro sees in Moses is he sees a man who's down on his luck, maybe even sees a man who's a bit of a loser. And he thinks, I could get a man who could work for me here, and maybe if I'm lucky, Moses will come back into favor, and then I'll be connected to Egyptian power and wealth. So Jethro sees kind of a double deal going on here. He'll at least get a shepherd, and maybe he'll get something much more significant um, by marrying his daughter to Moses. And I think we can say, knowing the bigger picture of the story, that Jethro gets far more than he thought he was going to get. But because Jethro sees Moses as being a bit of a loser, he probably thinks that there's something wrong with Moses' God. He would have associated the fortune of Moses with the power of Moses' God. And so when he looks at how Moses has been living his life and what is going on, he thinks, 
well, Moses either really made his God angry or his God is too weak to make Moses prosperous and successful. After all, Moses has had all the advantages that you could have in life, education, wealth, a powerful position, and here he is in Midian looking after sheep. Of course, the story jumps ahead from that point. And we all know what happens as Moses goes to the burning bush, goes back to Egypt, rescues his people, comes out into the desert, and fights off at least one enemy. Um, And then we're in Exodus 18. And the situation is entirely different. Jethro has now got to face the fact that Moses is no longer the guy he met 14 chapters ago. Moses is now leading this great people who have left Egypt. And he's heard the accounts of what went on there, how Moses confronted Pharaoh, how he brought the plagues, how he left Egypt with great treasure and escaped through the Red Sea. And so Jethro is coming to see this people, this community that God has saved from Egypt. And their their very existence is a challenge to how Jethro thinks about Moses, what he expects from Moses. According to Jethro, they have just escaped the most great and powerful nation on the face of the earth. And Moses is leading them. And there's an important experiential journey that that Jethro goes through here. Um, First, he hears about the great things that God has done in saving Israel. Then he goes and visits the community, and he sees that the community has a new and different identity, that they were once slaves and now they're being freed. And upon hearing the good news of everything the Lord has done and experiencing this new community, Jethro joins Moses in rejoicing and giving public thanks. We note in particular the declaration that the Lord is greater than all the other gods. Finally, Jethro responds by giving an offering. So what we see is this cycle where Jethro hears a little bit, he then experiences the community, he then recognizes a little more of who this God that Moses is worshiping is, and he then brings his own offering. And if we were to cover the rest of the chapter, we would note that the offering is that Jethro joins the community and offers wisdom to Moses to help him in his um, method of judging people. He, he gives something towards the law of Israel. But of course, there's another aspect of Jethro's story um, that is also worthy of reflection and connects us to the story of Cornelius in Acts. Cornelius is, of course, the surprising story of the gospel moving from to the Gentiles from the Jews. And, and it's not just any Gentile. Cornelius is a centurion. He's a man of the empire that resists God. And he gets incorporated into this new people of God who's being created at that moment. And what we see here is something very similar. Jethro, of course, is a Midian. He's not immediately included in the people of God. He's an outsider. And what we note here, if we compare this to what occurs in chapter 17 with the Amalekites, is that, is that they resist what God is doing in this creation. They go to war with God's people. Jethro, in contrast, as a Midian, gets included in God's people because he is amazed at what God is doing, um, and he responds with praise, and he starts to work for that community.
So as we consider the way in which Jethro's story links with our life as a church, probably three or 4,000 years later, we could attach words to it like evangelism and mission to his story quite safely. We just need to be careful not to flatten the features um, that make his story unique too much. And I think Jethro's story reminds us that salvation is not just an intellectual process, an acceptance of certain theological ideas. He also has a great element on experience. And if we were to look at what how sociologists describe conversion, we would see that. If we could have the slide on the screen. It's probably not very easy for you to read, but I'll read it out for you. Convert, converts emerge out of one context because of two, a crisis of some sort. This crisis prompts three, a quest to solve the crisis. The quest leads to four, an encounter and interaction with someone or something that advocates conversion. That encounter prompts five, a commitment, and six, consequences. So what we see when sociologists describe what happens in conversion, and they're talking not just about Christian conversion, they're talking about all kinds of conversion, um, the big and small ones that happen in life. Um, what we notice about it is that it makes conversion part of a story. And I think that's a very important piece. So the first thing we note about this is they talk about how people are living in a story and where they are in their story leads them to come to an encounter with Jesus. A crisis drives them to a potential encounter with Jesus. And this is why as communities who are following Jesus, we spend so much time trying to hear each other's stories and trying to get to know the stories of the people that we come into um, engagement with. We find we will answer the wrong questions um, and we won't love them in effective ways if we don't take time to listen to their story. Secondly, what I like about this model of conversion is that it reminds us that there are lots of little conversions that go in our life all the time. Obviously, there's some big ones that really shape the pattern of your life that you're going to live but it also helps us understand a little bit about the growth of the Christian life. We come and have new encounters with Jesus each and every week. Some weeks are really significant and they set us on slightly different routes. Some weeks we're just being formed into the story that Jesus um, has lived out for us. And thirdly, and I think most importantly for our lives as community of Jesus, this reminds me that conversion happens in a social context. It's about an encounter with a community. It's a personal encounter that works in that manner. And that encounter with the community eventually causes the person to take on the life of the community. And that, of course, is all a very um, academic way of speaking about what you have engaged in this, uh, this evening with your partnership. You have people who come and experience your community and they enter deeper into the life of the community and eventually they identify as being one of you. And because you guys identify as being Jesus people, that means they identify as being Jesus people. And I think this is particularly important in our age, which is quite cynical about the place of religion in life. 
Most people reject religious life before they even understand anything about it. Um, the religious life has gained uh, a bad rap. And so what happens is, just like Jethro, people are surprised when they come into contact with a community where people are loved, where support and care is offered to each other, and that experience causes them to overcome the bias that they have regarding religious life. So Jethro's story is the surprise story of how salvation crept up on a man who didn't imagine um, that this was what he was going to experience. He, of course, begins by encountering someone who seems a bit lost in his life. But when he encounters what God has done through Moses and the people that he is bringing about, um, Jethro has changed and he has a new view of this God who Moses speaks of. But this is a profoundly social change for Jethro. He encounters the greatness of Moses' God through his experience of the community. He doesn't encounter it through a set of theological ideas that answer all his questions. So I think there's like, there's four elements that, that help us see how um, Jethro's view of salvation was informed by his encounter with Israel. The first thing that Jethro sees when he sees Israel is that he sees that there's a new world reality. A new world order has been brought into place. Jethro thought that Egypt and their gods were the top order in the world. They're the most powerful people. But he discovers instead that Yahweh's action in history creates a new world reality. And of course, we see Jesus repeating that pattern. Jesus notes that the apparently powerful are not deciding the fate of history or the fate of the people that he is saving. Instead, Jesus is the king. It is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension which brings us new reality into full being. And so when we commit ourselves to Jesus, we come to live in this new way of life, this new reality, which embodies the reality of the future age in the present world. And so what we become is people who no longer seek after power. What we do instead is we seek after being obedient to Jesus and trusting him to bring us salvation. The second aspect um, that occurs to Jethro as he looks at these people before him and sees who they are is he sees that they have a new status. Formerly, they were slaves in Egypt. They did forced labor um, and they had to do it because otherwise they had violence inflicted upon them. But now they are free to live a life according to the new reality that we've just spoken about. And now their freedom isn't a freedom to do anything. They can't just do anything they wish, which is often our modern democratic expression of freedom. Instead, their freedom is a freedom to respond to Jesus, to respond to his call in their life. No longer will they be compelled to work, but instead they are invited to a wider vision of the world in which they labor with Jesus to bring about the flourishing of life for all. So instead of the work wearing them away, um, 
they find that despite the work sometimes being tough, it's also filled with joy. And it brings greater meaning and permanence to their life. We could put that another way and say that they are filled with the Spirit and He empowers them to work and draw close to Jesus through that work. So we have two new realities that Jethro experiences. The first one is a new social reality, and then there's a new freedom to work as a teammate with Jesus, as a partner with Jesus in bringing about flourishing in the world. But the community has more aspects than that. This new community that has left Egypt has a new set of relationships with each other. They are no longer divided by their sin, their selfishness. They can now forgive each other and enter into deeper relationships with each other through reconciliation. They are no longer divided from each other, but they are bonded together by the unity that has been given them in their rescue, in this event that is so miraculous. And of course, when we see Jesus come, we see the same pattern being um, extended. Jesus overcomes the diversity of the 12 disciples that he picks, and he molds them into a bunch that will work with him. And as the church goes out into the Greco-Roman world, we see that social status and race and gender and age and heritage are no longer the defining aspects of those people's lives, but instead they are defined by Jesus' life. And so Jethro, who is this outsider, sees an opportunity in this new community to become an insider, to have a new family. And so as we continue to live in the world, we continue to get to give that invite on behalf of Jesus. We invite other people to enter into the relationships that happen here where we love each other because of Jesus and because of the way that Jesus enables us to love each other. People want to join that place of family and fellowship. And the fourth aspect that Jethro discovers is that they have entered into a new life, a new source of life. When they were in Egypt, they hoped that Pharaoh and his gods would be good to them um, and that they might have life eked away as slaves on the edge of society. But having been rescued from Egypt, they become people who draw the life source from God. And we could look wider at the Exodus story here, and we know that God fed them with the manna and the quail, and God becomes the one who provides for them um, so that they can live as they journey with them. And, and when we extend that story into the life of Jesus, we see that it's not only that Jesus provides for us um, through his miraculous acts and his empowering of us with his spirit, but we also see that he overcomes death on our behalf. So no longer do we live in fear of death and as a result live trying to grasp at life, trying to hoard as much of it as we can. But instead we live with hope, um, leaving the idea of building a monument that we might be remembered by aside so that we can live for Jesus and we can have his life in us which we know will overcome death. G. 
Jesus changes the way that we enter into the world so that now we can give up our lives because we know that it's guaranteed in Jesus in order that others may encounter Jesus and have his life in them. So Jethro's story is that he comes and he experiences this surprise salvation that Israel has received. That Moses' God has come and he is powerful and able to save his people. And the invitation is nearly always the same. We're invited to enter deeper into God's salvation. To, to grasp more deeply at the aspects that escape us today. To become more fully the church that he desires us to be. And I hear from Chris lots of the good tales of the good things that are happening here. And that encourages me. But I want you to continue to encourage you to continue to model your lives on Jesus. To enter into the new social reality that he has created amidst you. To continue working out the process of salvation until he eventually comes in the future. You get an opportunity to demonstrate how the world can be different when Jesus is made president. You get to demonstrate the way in which our communities can be transformed and we can love and care for each other because of your encounter with Jesus. And I encourage you to continue to strive to become a people who testify about Jesus in every aspect of your lives. Come on Sundays and be shaped by Jesus' story but go out into the community during the week and speak of the way that Jesus has transformed your lives, has placed you in new relationships, has cleansed you of sin, has given you ability to love and to change the world and to engage with him in bringing flourishing life. My prayer for you is that the Spirit will empower you and prepare you for that task. Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you for the story of Jethro. We thank you for the reminder of your ability to draw people into relationship with you through the people you are saving. We thank you for the hope that provides for our friends and families that have not yet trusted in Jesus. And we ask that you will continue to transform us so that we will be a community filled with your life, that we will demonstrate to the world how you have made us new, and that people will be surprised by the salvation that they see there, and that they will desire to be joined to you and to enter into the new life that you are bringing about in the world. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.